So it seems to me when I think about Jesus, and I know if you talk to people about Jesus, people have all kinds of positive thoughts about Jesus. They go, oh, he's a you know, good guy, nice guy, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, whatever it might be. One of the things I don't often hear people say about Jesus is that he is a genuinely brilliant person who has unparalleled insight into the nature of human life. Like people don't think of him in those terms very often. We think of him as some religious guy who, if you want to get all religious, will help you. But, but actually, as a utterly brilliant or the most brilliant uh, human being who's given us insight into how the world works and how we should live in the world, I don't think we often think about that or think of Jesus in those terms. And uh, what, what I want to suggest to us today, that, that, w- that we should think of Jesus like that. We, if, what we discover is when we come to Jesus and go, you're the person who can answer for us the deep questions about how I can be a good person and how I can live a good life, I find that opens up uh, an enormous amount of life uh, and wellness for me and for our society. And you go, okay, that's great, Mark. Maybe that's true. Uh, what does that have to do with anything? Well, um, given the events in New Zealand, for example, this week, there's a lot of commentary. All immediately it happens. And uh, a lot of commentary on social media or on the news outlets about why did this happen? And it's kind of polarizing commentary, isn't it? Uh, on the one hand, you've got the... Um, he's... Well, this... You know... He's sick. Actually, that hasn't, I haven't seen a lot of that. You, you more have the, he's some crazy, deranged, white ethno-nationalist. And, uh, and he's a small, deviant part of the population. And then you have other people who go, well, the, the, he's Islamophobic, so he hates Muslims. And then you have others go, um, well, the real reason that happened is because people have been saying Islam is a terrible religion. And, and the real problem is that we've, we've fostered Islamophobia by a, a debate around the policy of immigration. And others will say, well, this is an inevitable response to jihadist Islam and the expansion of Islam globally and our terrible immigration policy. And, you know, you can draw across the spectrum uh, politically and socially all kinds of reasons for why this happened. Yeah, that's all. Uh, if you are, and I, I propose to not try and give an answer at that level. But I think Jesus can give us an answer that is far deeper and more personally challenging and more hopeful. And, uh, and that's what we're going to look at today. So I, I think it's, it's a challenge. Now, I, I'm sure, I'm not sure, I'm like 95% sure that I'll say stuff that you won't agree with at various points. And that's actually okay because that's part of being adults and thinking. And, I, and I may, that may be because I haven't expressed myself clearly, I haven't thought something through clearly, or I'm wrong and you're right, maybe you're wrong, maybe I'm right. But that's okay, it's all right to, to disagree when we try and take these great principles and dig down into really contentious practical applications. So we're going to think about this. And I'll tell you my thesis right up the front. Uh, the real reason that New Zealand happened uh, and the massacre is uh, because... Uh, because of unrestrained anger that led to contempt that issues forth in murder. Like that's the, that's the line, right? According to Jesus. You have anger that takes root in our hearts, that leads to a contempt towards other people, that issues in murder. And so the answer, and this could be the world's shortest sermon, the answer is deal with your heart 
Because if your heart wasn't controlled by anger that led to contempt, you would never commit murder. It's really very simple. Only it's not. So let's have a think about this text and see where we get to. This is what Jesus says, right? And remember, this is his sermon on the mount, sermon on a hilltop. And he's addressing a ragtag, motley bunch of people. I mean, they're ratbags. They're the social outcasts. They're the demon-possessed. They're the tax collectors. They're the sex workers. They're the poor, the destitute. And they've come to Jesus, and they've gone, wow, man, what Jesus has said is that, that me, as a, as a miserable, broken, screwed-up, messed-up person, I can, I can live with God. I can come into the kingdom of God just because Jesus has made that possible. And so, yes, that's lovely. That's awesome. Of course, immediately you're told you're, you're accepted by God irrespective of what you do. The next question is, well, then I can do whatever I want, right? If, if I'm accepted by God and I'm in the kingdom of God by grace, then I, I don't need the law and the prophets. Okay, I'm free, free to do whatever I want. And Jesus addresses this. It's very fascinating. He's just said to them, you're all in. And then he goes, you're all in, but that doesn't mean it's an all in. It doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. He says this, don't think I've come to abolish the Torah and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's very interesting. Um, the, the greatest thing any society has is its understanding of what it is to be a good person. Every society grapples with that profoundly, deeply. And the greatest gift... Uh, the greatest possession that Israel had up until Jesus arrived was the gift of Torah, was the gift of the law that outlined for them how they should live. What was it to be a good person? What was it to flourish in this world that God had made? And Jesus says, I haven't come to fulfill this. I haven't come to abolish it. I, it's not a, a, a life in the kingdom of God is not a moral free-for-all. This is sometimes the criticism given of, of uh, Christianity, particularly by some of my Jewish friends. who will say, well, if you... If all you've got to do is ask for forgiveness, then there's no, there's no law, there's no morality. You can just do whatever you want and ask for forgiveness. It's, that's on my Jewish side. The old Catholic joke that I remember as a teenager was, you, you know, you go to confession on a Saturday night and you say, Father, forgive me for I'm about to sin. And you get sort of preemptive forgiveness because then you, you're forgiven and you can go and do whatever you like, right? Um, and Jesus says, no, 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 uh, that's not right. He's come to fulfill it. Um, and in fact, he says that, uh, that what you've got to do is you've, you can't abolish it, but you've got to teach it, you've got to do it, you've got to fulfill it. And, and what does it mean to fulfill the Torah? What does it mean to fulfill the law? Well, the big problem with the law in Israel's experience or the code of ethics uh, or the way of life uh, the halakha, the, the, the path of life that was described uh, and unpacked the Torah was that... Um, what was the big problem? What was it? Obedience, right? Like actually doing it. Um, that's really hard. So, for example, I, I use this example a lot. Um, obedience, our hearts are so... It's, it's so hard for us to do that that if I obey the law, I've got to love God, I've got to love my neighbor as myself, I've got to do all these other things, and, and, and I've got to eschew, I've got to avoid pride. Pride is, a, pride is antithetical to the law, right? The problem is, uh, to the extent that I actually start to obey the law, I start to get proud about my obedience. I'm not like other people. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these other people who can't obey the law. 
So even in my obeying of the law, there's something so twisted or this kind of tendency inside me that even in my obedience, I start to become proud and then disobey. So it's sort of I self-sabotage all the time. And I suggest you self-sabotage a lot of the time as well. And certainly Israel did. They had the law and the problem was they couldn't obey it. And so uh, what the prophet said to Israel was, hey, listen, there's going to come a time when God is going to change your heart so that you keep the law in the same way that an apple tree bears apples. You just do it. Imagine that. Like, you just, you don't, loving someone is not your second nature. Loving someone is your first nature. Forgiving someone is not something you have to work at. Forgiving, uh, unforgiveness is unthinkable. Because you are just a person who, from the inside out, forgives people. And this was the great promise that, that God gave to the Old Testament, that people of God, that there would come a time where he changed our hearts. And he changed the hearts of people. And Jesus says, that time has come. I've come to bring about a profound interior transformation. And he said this change is so radical. Interesting, right? He was talking to a a leader of Israel in John chapter 3 called Nicodemus. And Jesus described this inner transformation as so radical. He said it was like you had to be born again. And of course, Nicodemus said, how can that possibly be? I know my basic anatomy. And of course, Jesus, was, Jesus said, you, you should know this more than anyone else. I'm not talking about a physical rebirth. He said, this, what I'm talking about is what, what you as a teacher of law should know you need more than anyone else. You need a rebirth, a change of heart, like a deep, profound change of heart. Um, now, of course, you may think to yourself this morning, uh, I'm, I'm really not that bad. I don't know if you've thought that. I sometimes think that. I have delusions of adequacy occasionally. And I find people who go, oh, Mark, there's a very negative view of, of human life. And I typically think the only reason I think I'm not that bad is because I haven't really been tested. Right? Uh, I, you, so you may think you're pretty fit. Yeah, I'm pretty fit. Well, you're pretty fit if your only test is walking from here to the car. But when last did you do an Iron Man or an Iron Woman? That'd show that you're not that fit. Try go run 42 kilometers. You'd, you know, you'd soon realize, yeah, you're not that fit, right? So I think sometimes we, we can, in our culture, we can have this illusion, we're really not that bad, are we? Until we're really tested. And then we go, actually, you know what? When the, when the pressure's on, you see what's in your heart, right? It's like, uh, it's like when the pressure's on, uh, and, and an enormous moral pressure comes on us, then the, the essence of us leaks out in our behavior, is extracted from us. So our hearts are like, you know, in the group head of a coffee machine, and the pressure comes on, and, and what comes out is, ugh. So, um, I don't know, you know, um, maybe it's the advantage of growing up in Africa and seeing my friends and my brother commit war crimes. You realize none of us is that far away from that, given the right situation. Like, it's not unthinkable that we could do really terrible things, is it? I mean, no, we'd like to think that it's unthinkable. And the beauty of some of the, you know, we, we see a massacre in New Zealand and we can all jump on and go, that's terrible, that's, oh. go, no, 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 listen. Listen, I'm, I'm telling you, uh, you know, 
First World War, Second World War, lovely kids from Balmain around here, they went to war full of absolute hatred of the Germans and the Japanese and massacred them and committed war crimes. And they were lovely kids who would fill our schools and our youth group today, but given the right situation and the right uh, opportunities, they will do great evil. Psychologists who work in this field say uh, the reason uh, people in the military get PTSD is typically not because what they've seen others do, it's because what they've done themselves. So we have, a, a, and, which is a terrible thought, right? Except if you've ever lived with war, you see it's, you can't, you can't go to war without participating in evil. And it's in us, so when the pressure's on, it'll leak out. And so Jesus says, you know what, in the kingdom of God, I've come to do something about that. I've, I've come to change our hearts so that when the pressure's on, what comes out is love. When the pressure's on, what comes out is forgiveness. When the pressure's on, what comes out is justice and mercy and beauty and truth. Now, if your mind's racing ahead even half as fast as mine is, I'm thinking, but, 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 hang on, hang on, what, you know, but, but Christians commit evil, Christians do all this stuff, how can you say that? And that's a good question, hold on to it, and we'll get there in a moment, or not. Um... Jesus says this in verse 20. He says this is really important because unless your heart is changed, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. God God is not at all impressed with your external obedience. I mean, he is at one level. I'm I'm sure God is is very greatly pleased that you and I aren't actual murderers today. But really, he says, life in the kingdom is not about external obedience. You've You've got to go a step further than the Pharisees. You've got to have your heart changed. That's what he's saying here. And then he shows what this means. And he says, well, listen, long ago it was said, don't commit murder. And you go, yep, that's great. That's the law. Do not murder. And here's where Jesus, and and it's fascinating, isn't it? Like he starts his discussion about life in the kingdom and how we should be good people. He starts with this issue of anger. And you go, why? Well, because the ultimate Uh, negation of life in the kingdom, the the ultimate affront to God is killing someone else made in God's image. So he goes, let's deal with, let's deal right at the start with the thing that does the most damage to human community. And so he starts this, and and this whole sermon on the mount in in Matthew 5 through 7, it's, it's one sustained, integrated, philosophically and psychologically profound argument. So you've got to read it as a whole. And in the whole, it's fascinating that he starts here with this, right? Anger. He says, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So yeah, uncontroversial. Bang, the the dude who murdered in New Zealand, he's going to be judged by God. Big thumbs up. But then Jesus like takes it to another whole level. He says, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. That's amazing, right? Anyone who is angry. And then he says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, and again, thanks, Rolf, for that that interpretation, uh, Raka so, so you've got this progression, right, of anger. And then Raka really is uh, contempt. 
And uh, then anyone who says, you fool, and, and the fool is, uh, is really, a, it's really a, a, word of, it's a word of eternal curse, actually. In the Hebrew world, it's, it's cursing someone. It's saying, You're, you, you should be dead. Uh, so Jesus says, the real problem with murder is the anger in our hearts. So let's think about that. Let's think about that psychologically and emotionally and go, well, what does that mean for us, right? Uh, and how does that work out um, in our lives? And why is anger um, such a massive issue for us? Uh, Dallas Willard puts it this way. Uh, it is the elimination of anger and contempt that Jesus presents as the first and fine, fundamental step towards the right, rightness of the kingdom heart. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? So if you go, what is our response to the murders in New Zealand? Uh, well, we can, we can argue at a policy level, and we should. We can think about it at a political level, and we should. We can think about it at a free speech level, and we should. But actually, Jesus would say the first response needs to be to deal with the anger in our own hearts. Right? I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting r- response, right? It says, eliminate anger and contempt from every human heart, and you'll eliminate murder. And our big problem is that that seems impossible, doesn't it? Like when last, when last did you have a day or a week or a month where you experienced no anger in yourself? And you might say, you, the question in your mind might be, but hang on, Mark, anger's just an emotion. How is it bad? And you might say, but hang on, I've been taught that we've got to express our emotions, like repressing our emotions is bad for us. Uh, that, by the way, is a, a Freudian concept, and Freud worked with a lot of metaphors, as did his contemporaries, um, the industrial metaphors of his day and age were, was steam power, right? So if the metaphor in your mind is steam, what's the thing you don't want to do with steam? Is let it build up and build up and build up and build up. You've got to, let it out, got to let out the steam, okay? So a lot of the rhetoric that we've learned about emotions and you need to express your emotions is actually built on the, the industrial metaphors that shaped Freud and his contemporaries living in the, industrial, in the steam age. Uh, it's not actually true. You talk to a psychologist and you go, anger typically begets more anger. So anger, anger indulged, anger expressed does not calm you down. It's not like, it's not like I have a certain amount of anger in me and it's, like a, it's building up and it's steam and if I just let it out, it all goes away and it's peaceful, right? It actually feeds on itself. And I've, I know that because um, I've experienced a lot of anger. Uh, not so much my own anger, for whatever reason, because I was the peacemaker in my dysfunctional family of origin. Anger is not an emotion I, I struggle with a lot. But, but in my family, I've experienced a lot of anger. I've experienced a lot of anger in leadership, people being angry with me. And you know what I discover? Is when people are angry with me, yelling at me, doesn't actually deal with their anger. <laughs> it just makes it worse. <laughs> so Jesus says, eliminate it. And this is the first and fundamental step. Um, So then what is anger? Well, the primary function of anger in life 
is to alert me to an obstruction to my will and immediately raise alarm and resistance before I even have time to think about it. So this is, my, this is the reality, right? I have a will. I want to make the world work. I have a goal. I want to get somewhere. And that goal is blocked. My will is thwarted. And so what instantly happens is I get angry. And it functions. Anger is like a, it's like a warning light on the dashboard of your soul. It says, oh, my, my, my will is being thwarted. My kingdom is being invaded by somebody else. Right? So what do you do with that? Well, what do you do with that? That's, that's the question, right? Um, here's a quote, again from Willard. Uh, he says, Some degree of malice is contained in every degree of anger. That is why it always hurts us when someone is angry at us. See, if, if I have a will, and I'm trying to get my will done, and you have a will, and you're trying to get your will done, when our wills collide, you get angry, I get angry, and, and your anger towards me actually is an attack. It's, it's this visceral emotional response that says, you are committed to making sure your will is done at the expense of my will, or irrespective of my desires and my will. Anger always harms. And anger indulged, when it grabs us, harms us even more. Uh, you can't feed anger. You can't, you can't let it take root in your life. Uh, Jesus says it must be dealt with. It must be addressed. Uh, we can and usually do choose or will to be angry. Anger first arises spontaneously, but we can actively receive it and decide to indulge it, and we usually do. Don't we? Don't you? Like, how did, how did the guy who committed the murders in New Zealand end up doing that? Well, work with me on this. At some point, he was just a white kid growing up in country New South Wales in Grafton. And then along the way, and I don't know this at all, I'm just, I'm just making it up, so bear with me. But is it possible that along the way he started to go, you know, my will, my desire to feel safe and secure and for my group, my tribe to feel safe and secure starts to come under threat. And so I start to feel angry at, at anyone who threatens my group identity and my sense of self and my security and my peace. And I start to tie that up with my ethnicity, my whiteness. Now, I grew up with a lot of people for whom whiteness was very important over against blackness. And we do that. And then, of course, once you, once you start to go, well, actually, my whiteness is important, my group identity matters, and, and I'm threatened by the will of the, the, the brown mass other of, uh, of, of Muslims, then I start, I start to feel angry that my way of life is being threatened. And uh, that could have been entirely spontaneous, you know, evoked by reading his history books of the Armenian genocide, of all the terrible things that have been done uh, by jihadist Muslims over centuries. It could have been sparked spontaneously by watching footage of 
you know, massacres in, you know, beheadings in Syria or Afghanistan. And who knows what started it, right? But then what does he do? Well, he becomes angry. And he indulges that anger. And it grows and it festers. And uh, then it becomes contempt. I'm right. I'm, I'm justified in being angry because they're other, because they're Muslim, because they're brown. And they're not fully human. So that's where contempt takes us to. It takes us to a place where we see the other person as not like us, as not fully human. I mean, you, you, how, how do we ever beat someone up? Well, we beat, you, you might, if you're stronger than them, you beat someone up because you, you have contempt for them because you think they're not, they're not as valuable as you are. So we actively receive it, we decide to indulge it, and we usually do. And Jesus says that has to uh, be dealt with. Anger indulged instead of simply waved off always has in it an element of self-righteousness and vanity, doesn't it? So find a person who has embraced anger and you find a person with a wounded ego. So how do you, you know, I'm right. All the Muslims are bad. All the, all, all the, white, people, all the, all the white people are right and we're good and we're being threatened and we're being attacked and we're in the right and they're in the wrong. Think about your marriage. When do you hold on to mar- anger in your marriage? I'm right. You're wrong. You've treated me so badly. How could you do this? Self-righteous. And a wounded ego. My ego, my will has been threatened. It's, you know. Think of the anger in workplaces. Think of the anger in churches. Wounded ego. My world, my will. My little identities. And I'm self-righteous. And, and this is the problem, isn't it? Is that you can't... It's, it's a hard issue because... Telling someone, just don't be angry, doesn't work because they feel so self-righteous. Well, I'm right to feel this way. So it's a deep heart issue long, long, long before it becomes a, an action. You see, only this element of self-righteousness can support me as I retain my anger long after the occasion of it or allow its intensity to heat to the point of totally senseless rage. To rage on, I must regard myself as mistreated or as engaged in the rectification of an unbearable wrong, which I all too easily do. (laughs) That's it, right? That's anger. And we have to address it. And you see, how does Jesus, what, what hope does Jesus offer? Well, think about it this way. Um, uh, if anger is my will is being thwarted and I hold on to that and then I, I justify myself and I, I've got to prove myself I've got to defend myself I've got to attack and crush the other when Jesus invites me to live in his kingdom what does he invite me to do? What does he invite you to do? He invites you to say to God, not my will but yours be done. Right? Isn't that, That's the essence of the Christian life. Not my will but yours be done. Now, if what shapes my whole existence 
is surrendering my will to God's will, then, then when you do something that I don't want on this earthly level, it's, it, it's quite easy to wave off, isn't it? Because it's not my will that's ultimate, is it? It's not what I want. My ego is not at the center anymore. Because when I come and live in the kingdom of God, what's at the center of my life now? God's will. Not mine. So I'm very upset if you cut me off or if you thwart my goals to be X, Y, or Z. But, it, but anger doesn't, doesn't lodge in my heart and grow and control me because you know what? What I'm living for is God and his kingdom. I've already given up the futile attempt to ensure my kingdom triumphs over everything. I've already surrendered my will to the will of another. So you know what? If you get in the way of my earthly will being done, it'll annoy me briefly, but I can let it go because I'm living for God. Now, um, if you think about this in terms of your marriage, right? Here's, here's how you build a peaceful marriage. If both of you are surrendering your wills to God and you're like, you know what? God's will be done, not mine. Then when your spouse, when your will inevitably inter- clashes with that of your partner's, it's not, a, it's not a threat to the very essence of your being that you've got to hold on to and be angry about and defend and attack and, and end up in contempt because you go, yeah, yeah, I'd like to do this, you'd like to do that, but together actually we'd like to do what God wants far more. And it's not a threat doesn't, you know, so um, it's not a threat to who I am. So that, that means, because it's not a threat, you see, that's why Jesus says, this is what's going to characterize us if we live in his kingdom. We become people where instead of the anger leading to contempt and murder and broken relationships, we become people when reconciliation, peacemaking, is just what we do and who we are. So uh, in this text here, there's this massive therefore. Um, In the light of this analysis of anger and the problem of the heart, he says, therefore, if you're attending your gift, offering your gift at the altar, so you're you're, you're doing a super uber religious thing, and then you remember, ah, your brother or sister is something against you, be the sort of person who leaves your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Now, it's an illustration. It's not a law. But it's, it's a picture of a person who says, ah, I, I, I'm living in community, in relationship with people. I'm never holding on to anger, right? So if I remember that somebody's angry with me, uh, when I'm outside the kingdom of God, the natural response is to be angry back to them or attack them or defend myself. In the kingdom of God, the natural response uh, if, if your will is surrendered to Jesus, your natural response is to go and seek reconciliation. Now, uh, of course, that's a problem, right? If you, um, I mean, you, you can't make it a law because it'd be a little awkward, right? Like you, you come to church. What does that mean? So I've heard this taught before. You come to church and you're on the way to take communion and you remember someone's grumpy with you. So you leave your communion wine and bread down the front and you and you go and seek reconciliation, well, how, how does that really work? I don't know. What if they're on the other side of the world? 
what if, what if they don't want to speak to you? Right? I, I know people who are angry with me who don't want to speak with me. And I, I go, I, what can I do then? That's really hard. I'm, I'm sure you have people like that in your life as well. So it's not a law. But the challenge is this. Are you the sort of person who is so yielded to Jesus, who's given you such a new heart, that when the pressure is on, what leaks out is not anger, contempt, and murder, but when the pressure is on, what leaks out is reconciliation and forgiveness. That's the sort of person we should be, right? First go and be reconciled to them. And then, of course, he says this as well. I mean, here's another illustration, and I don't want to undercut uh, the practice of the law, um, nor do I want to make a joke about George Pell maybe having given some thought to this. It might be too soon to make jokes about that. Um, be the sort of person who uh, settles matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. I think what, he's, what Jesus is saying is be the sort of person who is not consumed and controlled by your anger so you go down a path that is ultimately destructive and self-destructive, Right? And if you have, I mean, if you've ever been involved in any family law disputes, then you'll know how in family law you will have couples who, who divorce and are so full of anger that they will, they will go to court and spend all their money and all their energy and destroy their lives and their kids out of anger. They get on this course that they can't get off because they're so angry and contemptuous of the other. And Jesus says... Don't be like that. Don't, don't, don't let your anger control you so that you're on a course that's going to be destructive for you. And in this instance, he uses the example of going to court. And isn't that a great example? Yeah, okay. No. You can, Jesus does seem to, I think you can go to court. The law is there to be used. But we're the masters of it. We're not controlled by our anger. Um... What you need to do, what we need to do, is understand when we're angry, our will has been thwarted, we're threatened, but in Christ we're completely secure. It's his will that matters anyway. Defend what needs to be defended, but don't let our anger control us. Paul says this, you know, in Ephesians, he says, in your anger, do not sin. He says, in your anger, don't, don't give Satan a foothold. Like, that's how serious it is, right? Like, our, when anger grabs hold in our hearts, it actually gives the devil a foothold in our lives. Like, we open our whole web of relationships up to genuinely malevolent and evil forces, according to Scripture. And we see that all the time, don't we? It's, the other metaphor that's used in the Bible often of anger is the fire. It burns. So, uh, what does that mean for us as a community? Well... Surrender our lives, die to self, give up insisting on our own will. Uh, become a people where we find peace with God, peace with ourselves, and peace with others. Like, really look at that. I think it's, what's, what, are the, what are the indicators that you and I are really in the kingdom of God? What's well, that we are free of anger and contempt? For a, for a Christian person to be controlled by anger is a sign that they're not really Christian. Uh. 
I guess, like that's, no, that's hard. But, but actually what, like life is hard. The fact it's hard doesn't mean we can't do it. The goal of a church like ours is to form us into Christ-likeness, to actually grapple with this stuff. And say, what does it mean with God to have a new heart, to live lives free of anger and contempt, and to be people of peace and reconciliation? And look, I don't know, I, I'm sure, and I've been waffling on for a while, I'm sure there's, there's 50 questions that are going through your mind right now, maybe in your own, what if, what if someone's done this to me? What if someone's done that to me? What if they won't apologize? What if they won't forgive me? What if they're dead? How do you, how do you make peace with a dead person? Um... What if the anger is internalized and you actually hate yourself? Like, they're really good questions. And Jesus will guide us in the answer, in the living out of those. But we've got to do it together, right? We've got to, we've got to hold a mirror up to each other at times. Yeah. Say, well, I see this in your soul. Maybe you're not as Christian in your heart as you proclaim. Like, God's got more work to do. I mean, he's got more work to do in my life. And there's nothing, um, there's nothing in the world that goes better with anger, is there? Like, think about it. Why is this so important? Is there anything in your life that actually goes better with anger? No. Initial anger shows you there's something wrong, then deal with it in love. So let's just stop being angry. Like it's really simple. Let's be a people of reconciliation. Let's be a people of peace. It's, like it's not that hard, right? Only it's incredibly hard. That's why we need God's help. That's why we need to be in a church and in small groups where we live this stuff out. I'm going to pray. And then we've got about five minutes before the kids come back. And I thought what we'd do is, um, is just, I'd open it up for some questions. If there's anything really burning in your heart that you think I haven't communicated clearly. So let me pray, and then we'll take some questions. Lord God, uh, just thank you for this teaching on anger and contempt. And thank you that you give us new hearts. And I pray for each of us that you'll, you'll continue to change us and shape us. So we are from the inside out free of anger and contempt. And that we are from the inside out people of reconciliation and peace. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Now, five minutes. Questions, comments, words of person. Yes, Sally. Whoa, do I think that to not forgive someone is sinning? Yep. Yes, I do. I think we're called to forgive. Is there a question behind the question? We could unpack that. I could do a Jordan Peterson. You ask him one question at a public thing and he talks for 45 minutes. I really could. Um, John. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Did you all hear that? That's a very good question. The question is, how do we deal with those deep-seated, long-term, like maybe stuff triggered by our family that results in, in this sort of little pool of anger that doesn't take much to be triggered, right? Like it's this, little, it's this little pilot light of anger that just a little thing happens and it flames up and it's just always there. I, I think it's worth having deep questions about how God's kingdom and presence can speak into and set me free from that. Uh, and so deep conversations. So um, I, I, think it's, I think you've just got to keep addressing it and, and become aware, okay, so, so this is happening in my life and then this happens and I get triggered and I get angry and this is the response. So the goal is to say, here's, here's the behavior, here's the trigger, here's the response, here's my remorse. Self-awareness brings that, that awareness of, what is God doing in my life and what am I like and what should I change back to as that, as that anger starts to well up, maybe in the moment you become aware of it. And then as we grow with self-awareness, we start to go, oh, no, before it erupts, I'm aware that I'm heading down that path. I think prayer ministry helps enormously. I think God can actually heal memories and heal hurts. I'm not talking about recovered memory and all that sort of stuff, but I think you can pray into some of those deep wounds of our, in our egos that uh, feed the, the pool of anger in us. Because our ego, it's the wounded ego, it's that little kid in us that was shamed or humiliated or hurt or thwarted that, that just is still angry. Um, yeah, I, therapy, prayer ministry, Christian community, honesty, humility, discipleship. Yeah, because if our, it's, it's, a, it's really profound, John, because if our discipleship doesn't address that kind of stuff, it's not r- really real, is it? Like it's got a, the cash value of the kingdom has to be like in our lived experience like that. Yeah, good question. Any other questions? Yeah, Rolf. Yeah. Yes. So the question was, Ralph made the very good comment that the people of Israel in the Old Testament went from, we're so glad, God, you've rescued us from Egypt to, oh, where are the leeks and the cucumbers? Life was so good in Egypt and we're just dying here in the desert. God, you're so... And, and rightly, um, actually building an attitude of gratitude, being, remembering to be grateful to God for all he's done for us in Jesus is a way to help undercut that seed of anger. Um, the, the Puritans, there's an, art, an essay by, I can't remember his name, the Puritans talk about the expulsive effect of a new affection. So an affection is an emotional state. The way to deal with being controlled by anger is to replace that affection of anger with a different affection, which is love for God. 
So let the love for God drive out the anger. You can't just talk your way out of anger. You actually have to replace it with a positive affection or gratitude. So what, what drives that out can be gratitude, love. Uh, that's the way. Yeah, Darren. Yeah. So that was a really good question. Uh, people, anger can be useful because it mobilizes us to action. So uh, I'm angry about climate change. Let's go march for climate change. Okay, so that's good. Uh, my, I think that anger as, a, as an initial warning light on the dashboard of your soul or your society can be good to mobilize action. But any, any long-term social movement that is fueled by anger will end in contempt for the other and in murder of the other. So I look at that on social media, for example. I am, I am wounded, like literally distressed at the level of contempt I see dripping off the pages of social media for people who disagree with each other's positions. And it's horrendous. So I don't think climate change advocates are going to get anywhere by becoming, letting their hearts be full of contempt for people who disagree with them on the science of climate change. It's not going to work. Like, it's just a stupid point of view, right? Like, you, it, it won't get better with anger. Um, yeah, but then there's a the whole question of righteous anger and what do you do? I could see, Tom, I could read your mind. Uh, so God is angry, and that's next week's sermon, maybe. Or I think God's, so the only reason God can be angry and still safe is because uh, anger is not who God is. Love is who God is. So because God is love, when he is angry, it is always proportionate, it is always righteous, and it always has as its end goal the full restoration of even the objects of his anger. And we see that most closely in Jesus Christ. Uh, I think for us, that is almost impossible until we are fully until we are love like God, I think anger can be felt, can be experienced, can be righteous. Like I get angry, man, I get angry at slavery. Why am I so involved with IJM? Because I think it's utterly unthinkable that 42 million people would be held in a form of modern day slavery. That makes me very angry. Uh, but actually anger doesn't control me at all. What, what actually keeps me engaged with the work of IJM is love is love for the victims and actually love for the perpetrators. And it's a much more helpful place to come from than, than uh, anger because it stops you becoming full of contempt and contempt is destructive so I, and, by, and then I think anger and contempt actually leads to fascism so what you'll end up with is um, if, if for example I mean I, you'll see it if for example uh, a climate change, a particular view on policy on climate change becomes if, if it's driven by anger and contempt, it will, those, once the people who hold that view have power, they will actually destroy uh, th anyone who disagrees with them. You know, it's the same with, with any social policy, right? Like if it's driven by contempt, it becomes a, an engine room for fascism and control once the person who has that view comes to power, whether it's a racial ideology, whether it's religion, uh, climate change, abortion. You, like it'll, you'll actually crush people who disagree with you if you can, 
Um, and that's why it's very, very dangerous in our political process, anger and contempt. And by the way, that's why Christians in politics are so vital, our role as citizens, because we can actually go into politics full of love for the other, even the other who disagrees with us and hates us, right? That's why, by the way, if you have a presence on social media, don't let, never let any anger or contempt drip from you about other people. I mean, I, I can't believe the stuff I read from Christian, my Christian friends when they talk about Scott Morrison and the, the, the Liberal Party's view on immigration. For example, and I, that evil person, that, and when Peter Dutton was, whoever's been in that role, even when Labour were, and it was a Labour policy, the, the contempt and the visceral hatred of this politician. And you go, that's just, that's exactly what Jesus says we shouldn't be like. Uh, it's not helpful. So we've got to be there. So going back to two weeks ago, salt and light says the way we are salt and light is by, by always being actually, when the pressure's on and someone really, really disagrees with our policy, even has a policy that we find morally repugnant, children in detention centers or whatever it might be, even then you never go to contempt towards them because what, what you are is love. And love can move you to strong action, but never action animated by anger and, uh, and, and steeped in contempt. So, I mean, that's a, gosh, we could unpack that for much longer, and the kids are here. Um, I could really keep talking for a very long time on this, um, but I won't, though it's quite fun. It's like a theological filibuster. We just keep talking. No one can leave. Um, let me pray, and then we'll sing together. Lord God, um, Free us as a church from anger. Free our families from anger and contempt. Free our relationships. Uh, free our workplaces. May we be agents of reconciliation and peacemaking wherever we are. And uh, we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So we are going to sing one last song. Uh, it would be really cool if this one came with actions, but I suspect it's not going to. So we're going to stand and sing. It's our